If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up to the book of 1 Thessalonians to chapter 5. Chapter 4 ended with the rapture and the resurrection. Chapter 5 begins with, They will be caught unawares when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall escape, but not you. And now we need to know what separates they from you. The you being us. How many of you are part of the you? Of course we are. So verse 5. Here's the difference. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. What's that mean? Does that mean we stay up 24 hours a day we never go to bed? No. Does it mean we keep the lights on all the time so it never gets dark? No, that's not it. It has to do with living in sin, doesn't it? Let's trace this down through the scriptures and see what does the Bible say. Go first to the book of Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. I never realized until today how much the Bible in the New Testament talks about the difference between the light and the darkness. So let's see if we can illuminate the subject, every pun intended. Luke 16, 8. I know you guys say, okay, settle down, got it. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. What does shrewdly mean? Does it mean honestly? No, no it means craftily, right? Yeah. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. The sons of light are more innocent, more honest, more straightforward. Wouldn't make good car salesmen. Well, well, that's just an old stereotype. Let's go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. My apologies to all the used car salesmen out there. John 12, beginning in verse 35. Right after telling the disciples that Messiah must be crucified, and they still don't understand what he means. He gets real specific in verse 35 and says, Then Yeshua said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. What light is he referring to? Himself. He's the light of the world, remember, from John chapter 1. Walk while you have the light. In other words, follow Messiah. Walk in his path. Learn from him. Learn right from wrong. Learn how to take the gospel message to a lost and dying world. It says, lest darkness overtake you. So if you do not continue to walk in the light, what does Messiah say will happen? That darkness will overtake you. So stay on the path Messiah sets. Follow Messiah. What does it say in 1 Corinthians 11.1? 1? Imitate me, Paul said, as I also imitate Messiah. In other words, walk in the light as I walk in the light. Verse 35 goes on to say, he who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. If he's walking in darkness, you know where he's going. And that's to the lake of fire, which is also called what? It's also called... Yeah. Oh, shit. 
lake of fire. Okay. It's also called utter darkness, outer darkness, a place where there is absolutely no light. So verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Where did we see that phrase, sons of light, before? In 1 Thessalonians 5.5, right? You are sons of the light. You are sons of the day. Sons of light meaning you are followers of Messiah. You walk his path. You live as he lived. You follow his customs. Go to John 1.5. I said Messiah is the light. Let's go look. He tells us that himself. John 1, we'll start in verse 4 to get a run and start. John 1, not 1 John, but John 1, beginning in verse 4. In him that is in the word of God, who is Messiah, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Why did the darkness not comprehend the light? Why did they not understand it? Because they didn't want to. Because if you walk in the light, everyone can see your actions. And if your actions are evil, sinful, do you want them seen by everybody? Then you're walking in darkness. <laughs> then you're truly walking in darkness. Yes, go to Matthew 4. Matthew 4. Normally, I go from one end of the Bible to the other in a nice orderly progression. Not this time. We're bouncing all around. Because I want you to see it's all over the place. Matthew chapter 4, verse 16. Quoting from Isaiah. The people who sat in darkness... Referring to the Gentile peoples. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And those who sat in the region and shadow of death, upon them the light has dawned. So this light is referring to Messiah. Having been born in Bethlehem. Having been born in Bethlehem, but... Where was his ministry? Capernaum. That's in the Galilee. Called Galilee of the Gentiles. Why was it called Galilee of the Gentiles? Because there was the Decapolis, ten Roman cities, ten Gentile cities around the Sea of Galilee. It's a very beautiful place in Israel, and that's where the Romans wanted to be. That's where they put their garrisons. So what did those Roman cities, those pagan cities, bring into Israel? Darkness. So why does Messiah walk through the Jewish cities around there preaching the light? Because otherwise the tendency is to let's follow the darkness. Let's follow the ways of the Gentiles. What does Paul say in Ephesians 4.17? Should we follow the way of the Gentiles? No, we should not. Go to John chapter 3. John 
John chapter 3, verse 19. After telling us in John 3.16 what you see in every football stadium when they hold up the signs, God so loved the world, right, that he sent his only begotten son. Verse 18 says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but who does not believe is condemned already. But verse 19 explains why. Why are they condemned who refuse to believe in the name of Messiah Yeshua? And this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. God sent Messiah into the world to be the light of men and people did not want the light. They didn't want Messiah. That's why they cried, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 20 explains further, for everyone practicing evil hates the light. It does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth, what is the truth? Psalm 119, verse 142. The Torah, the commandment, statutes, and judgment of God comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Let me suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, even what's done in darkness will come to the light God knows. And come judgment day, it'll be judged. How many times have you seen somebody shoplift in a store and they look left, they look right, they never look up. <laughs> but God is always watching. John chapter 8, verse 12. We're going to establish a principle in verse 12 that you're going to see all over the rest of the New Testament. Then Yeshua spoke to them again saying... What's the word saying? I forget. It's a quote. That's right. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. If you follow Messiah, is it possible to walk in darkness? No. It is not. If you follow Messiah, he will never lead you into darkness. He will only lead you into the light. Let's go to John 12, verse 46. <coughs> I have come as a light into the world. Who's speaking? Yeshua. Yeshua is. That whoever believes in me, that means Jew, Gentile, man, woman, black, white, makes no difference whatsoever. Whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. You see that word should not? If you go back to the original Hebrew, I would have translated it will not. You could also say cannot. And that's the point that John's going to continue to make in 1 John, in 2 John, in 3 John. Is that if you believe in Messiah, if you're saved by faith, you cannot walk in darkness. Your spirit will not allow it. It would be too painful. Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, verse 18. 
Acts chapter 26, verse 18, where we're going to start in 17, so that we start at the beginning of the sentence. What's wrong with starting in the middle of a sentence? You might not get the whole context, right? Yeah. So verse 17 says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. For what purpose? That's verse 18. To open their eyes. Everybody do me a favor. Close your eyes and now read the rest of the verse. You can't because you're in darkness. That's why it says to open their eyes so that they can see where they are going, the path that they're walking, in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Those who are sanctified by faith in me is talking about the Jewish people who have believed, like in Acts chapter 2. This is Paul saying, God sent me to the Gentiles so that they could be grafted in. So that they could be also among those. So let's read again verse 18. To open their eyes. Whose eyes? The Gentiles' eyes. Those that have walked in darkness because they didn't know the Torah. In order to turn them from darkness to light. There's a key right now. Write down on your paper if you're taking notes. Darkness and light. And now it's going to tell us what one is versus the other. From the power of Satan, is that darkness or light? That's darkness. To God, that's light. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. Are the sins darkness or light? <coughs> They're darkness. And the inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me, they're the ones who walk in the light. So now... We are left with no uncertainty as to what we mean by darkness versus light. Those that are walking in darkness are walking in sin, following after the power of Satan. Those that are walking in the light are walking in righteousness, following the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God as Messiah taught. Let's go to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 19. Starting in verse 17, so we start at the beginning of the sentence. Indeed, you are called a Jew. What does the word Jew mean? It means one who worships the true and living God. That's what Jew is from Yehuda. And rest on the law. And make your boast in God. And know his will. And approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. Wait a minute. How do they know the things that are excellent? Because they're being instructed where? Out of the law. Wait a minute. This is in Romans, isn't it? I thought Romans said the law has been abolished. No, it doesn't. Verse 19. And are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind. Talking about the Gentiles. A light to those who are in darkness. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. 
You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? His point is, to know the righteous requirements of the law is not sufficient. It's not do you know them, it's do you do them. And Paul is talking to his Jewish brethren saying, you know the law, you just don't do it. And you're teaching Gentiles to walk as you do. If you're not walking in the light, where are you leading them? And as for Matthew 23, Messiah says you're leading them into the lake of fire. Should you follow a teacher that's teaching darkness or that is teaching light? Uh Uh-huh. Yep. It's so blinding like it was to Paul. It yep. absolutely takes you off of your feet. They translate Torah in the New Testament as law, but what it really means is instruction. Instruction in righteousness. How do we know how to walk in the light? Because God told us how to walk in the light. Let's keep going in Romans. Romans chapter 13, verse 12. Again, this is the book of Romans, written by Paul to Gentile believers and how to walk uprightly. It says in Romans 13, verse 12, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. By day, he's talking about which day? The day of the Lord. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. What are works of darkness did we just read? Works of darkness are sins. So Paul says, stop sinning. And let us put on the armor of light, that is the armor of righteousness, to teach people how to walk in the light. Hey, there's a thought. Teaching people to walk in the light. Go back to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. Verse 3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What do the stars provide? Light. So those who are wise, those who follow God's commandments, statutes, and judgments shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness, which means away from lawlessness, away from darkness, will shine like the stars forever and ever. So be the light to those that are lost in darkness. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is where Paul gives us those polar opposites. It's one way or the other. That was a song, wasn't it? Forget the song. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? So what does Paul call righteousness? Light. What does he call lawlessness? Darkness. Can you dive in a little bit deeper on be not 
Yeah, be careful who your friends are. <laughs> Let me tell you a story. I knew a Nazarene pastor who had been a druggie, who got saved, got clean, got into the ministry, and wanted to minister to those in the light path that he had been in. So he started going to the drug dens and pretty soon started using with them and pretty soon overdosed and died. He didn't draw them into the light. They drew him back into the darkness. Be careful who your friends are. Because as they go into sin, they try and bring you with them. So it's not just marriage if you're thinking it. No. I had a business partner and uh, the Lord told me that I had to separate myself because he was a homosexual. Mm -hmm. And I can never get my family to understand that I walked away from a business for something like this. And they said, well, you're not responsible for his sin, but I'm also not responsible to help support him. Correct. If you encourage his sin, Romans chapter 1 says you're guilty. Yep, I agree. So let's go on to Ephesians chapter 5, also written by Paul. Paul wrote a lot. He had a lot to say. Yeah, well, when you're sitting in prison, what do you have to do but write letters? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. On the other hand, if he hadn't been sitting in prison, he wouldn't have had time to write all these letters. We would be without. Ephesians 5, 8. Oh, we got to back up to six for context, not to the beginning of a sentence, but for context. Verse six says, let no one deceive you with empty words. That's talking about the false teachers. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Are those sons of light or sons of darkness? Darkness. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Do not walk in darkness with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Don't walk in the sins you used to walk in. In other words, you need to what? What's that word? Re what? Repent. Repent. Yes, sir. Who does the wrath of God come upon? Not his children, the sons of disobedience. Not his children, but the sons of disobedience. And is that not a lot what Paul's getting at here in 1 Thessalonians? Is the wrath of God is not for you? Who's it for? The sons of disobedience. How do you tell a son of disobedience from a son of God? Is that not in 1 John chapter 3? Let's go to 1 John chapter 3 and see if my memory is correct. First John chapter 3 verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil, in other words the children of light versus the children of darkness, are manifest, made obvious, easy to see. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. If he's not practicing righteousness, what is he practicing? Lawlessness. And therefore is a child of darkness. 
Back to Ephesians chapter 5. I know I should have told you to leave a finger there, but well, I forgot. <laughs> I think you like this, Jason. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 11. Now let me also turn to Ephesians or in the same place. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. There's that word ergon that Daniel talked about. But rather expose them. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Yeah, so that you can witness to them. Remember, Paul or Messiah said, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. You got to be here. So, yep, they're. But these are not. Yes. Just wanted to ask one. I'm sorry to interrupt. I wanted to ask one quick question. The problem that I have with this is no fellowship. I understand with friends, but what do you do about your family? Do you not have any fellowship with your family? That's uh, walking in sin, especially following after the church. What do we do? That's up to you, but if it were me, I probably would have no fellowship with them. It's not easy, no. It's not easy, but okay. We all understand that. Ephesians 6. Wayne. Yes, Edmund. I think it's always helpful to keep in mind where Paul is talking about uh, associating with people outside the church yeah. and people inside the church. So if the people uh, are not believers or whatever, then I, would, uh, I, will I, I can relate to them. But I have a lo lot more trouble sorting out how to manage dealing with people who are wayward within the church than I do with wayward people outside. Yeah, that's what Paul... I assume outside you're going to be wayward. Yeah, and Paul... Just, go ahead, sorry. Continue, please. Uh, I, I, I would just um, be, be there for people who don't know the Lord, uh, um, you know, and, and attempt to be... Um, show kindness and a willingness to be there for them if that's what they wish yeah whereas i would find that very much more difficult with someone in exactly the same situation within the church yep don't confuse contact with and conversations with with fellowship with fellowship is like joining hand in hand walking together what you're doing is fine we are just great with what you're doing. That's fellowship, one joining with another. So that doesn't mean have no contact with. It means don't approve of the sin, not have no contact with the people. I mean, that's what we're here for, is to let our light shine. But if we, if we hide it under a bushel, we can't ever let our light shine. Yeah. Keep a finger here. I remember to say it this time. And go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5.
verse 9. Because I'm distinguishing in my mind between fellowship and contact with, and maybe I'm not making that come across clearly. First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, that is one who claims to be a believer, who is sexually immoral or covetous, or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. And that's probably the same thing Edmund was coming from, the same direction. Um, when you sit down to eat with someone, that's called table fellowship. That means we are accepting each other. We are agreeing with what each other is doing. And that's what we're not supposed to do with somebody who claims to be a believer and yet is walking in darkness. And the purpose is, as it's described in First and Second Corinthians, is to let people walking in darkness see their need to repent. If everybody's patting them on the back and saying the Lord loves you just as you are, there's no need to change. Are you helping them come out of the darkness or are you encouraging them to remain in the darkness? And that's not love. That's not love. Everybody go home and read that letter, my friend, again, about the one who perished and is in torment looking up at their friend who never shared with them. Okay, we know where we're going. Back, or maybe, not. yes ma'am, well, go ahead. Just, I'm, I'm glad you took us back there to 1 Corinthians, um, because that is a, a ray of hope for me with regards to my sons who have estranged themselves from me, and yet I know the way they were raised and trained in the fear and admonition of the Lord and everything, the relationship that I had all those decades but I realized that they have to walk where they're choosing to walk right now, as far as darkness versus light and you know shades of gray or whatever. Mm -hmm. And yet the Lord says, train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. And he has to, they have to be at that point of having you know, grown up to be able to realize and to return or you know, repent and so that's yep. very encouraging to me as a mom. And it may take your going in the rapture and their remaining behind to think about, now why was that? Exactly. What was the difference? Yes. So back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It also helps us understand darkness versus light and who's behind the darkness. So you've already read it. Okay. <laughs> You're right. Verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. These are the forces of Satan. Against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. They're the ones bringing the darkness. They rule the darkness. They want to separate you from God. People think, oh, the devil loves me. No, the devil wants you to burn forever. He wants you to join in with the party and 
Yeah, the devil just doesn't want you to serve God. So those people out there that are worshiping Satan and thinking that Satan loves them, they're going to be really surprised come Judgment Day. So let's go on to Colossians. If Paul taught about this concept in all these other letters, did he mention anything in Colossians? Chapter 1, verse 13. If you have been saved by faith, and there's no other way, then Paul's talking about you in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He, that is the Lord our God, and our Messiah Yeshua, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So prior to your salvation, you walked where? In the power of darkness. And God has delivered us from that power. Go to 1 Peter. Did Peter ever talk about this topic? I hear somebody go, yep. And I'm not covering all the references to it in the New Testament. It's literally everywhere. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Whoops, I see two chats out there. Let me see. Yep, that's true, Jimmy Reese. That's true too, Susie. Okay. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you, who's the you? Those are the believers. Are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. What did Messiah promise in Revelation 1-6 to make us kings and priests? What do priests do? They lead people to God, to righteousness. A holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. Amen. If we have been called out of the darkness, does that mean we should continue to walk in the darkness? No. Should we return to the darkness? We should not. We should walk in the light. First John. First John. Chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 1. We did 1 Peter already. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. This is the message which we have heard from him, him being capitalized, refers to the Lord, and declare to you that God is light, God bless you, and in him is no darkness at all. If there's no darkness at all in God, how much darkness should there be in us? None. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
So if someone is walking in darkness, breaking the commandments of God, does this say they're saved or not? First hmm. John chapter 2. If you think I'm going to say verses 2 to 6, you're wrong, but you were thinking it, I know it. But we're going to go to verse 8. Again, a new commandment I write to you. Which word new is that? Neos or kainos? It's kainos, which means it's renewed. It's kind of like Messiah saying, why don't you give it a try for a change? Which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Why is he talking about people who hate their brothers? He's talking about other believers. Are we talking about Jewish believers and Gentile believers hating each other? Could be. Thinking that one's better than the other? That's not the way it's supposed to be. Go to Ephesians 2. I actually have a friend who attends a church that uh, has taught him and his wife that to uh, hate the Jews. And he made a comment with me in the presence, and I just said, why do you feel that way? It wasn't for the Jews, Jesus would still be alive. I said, no, no, go back and read your Bible. You know, it had to be. It had to be because it had to be. Yep. And it just blew his mind because his pastor is teaching anger and hostility towards the Jews or Israel because Jesus died. And that doctrine is out there everywhere. Yep, there's all kinds of bad doctrine <clears throat> out there. Oh. It takes a college degree to misunderstand scripture usually. Uh. <laughs> True. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. He's saying the Jewish believers are looking down on you Gentile believers, and it's not supposed to be like that. So verse 14, he himself is our peace, that is, the Jews and the Gentiles should stop hating each other. There should stop being a separation. Has made both one. Once you get saved, it does not matter if you were born a Jew or a Gentile. It does not matter in the slightest has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Talking about that sign on the wall in the temple that said Gentiles can't go past this point under pain of death. That God didn't tell them to put that up. That was one group saying we're better than you. And that is nonsense. There's so much nonsense being taught in various places. One of the first things that I heard when I got down here to the south, was a Baptist church down toward Atlanta was teaching that black skin is the mark of Cain, and that's why black people are to be hated. That's nonsense. What happened to the descendants of Cain in the flood? 
They all died. It's, it's, not, it's an excuse to hate people when God said, who are we supposed to hate? The works of darkness, not people. But see, you just hit the nail on the head. That would mean that they would actually have to have read this. Yeah, okay. You got a point. All right, you, you identify the problem. Okay, so let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. Verse 6. Now that we have seen what it means to be in darkness versus in light. Verse 6 says, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. That word sober means right-minded, but it means more than just right-minded. It means and watchful. So it doesn't mean don't go to sleep at night. It means be spiritually aware and discerning. There is so many false teachers out there that are teaching darkness. And we need to avoid that. We won't name anybody by name, but you know who. Let's take a look at that word sober. We're going to look at just a few of the places it appears so we can get an idea what it means. It doesn't just mean don't drink. It means much more than that. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5.8. You guys go, well, that's just two verses from where we are. Yeah. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. That's what they mean by being sober. Be right-minded. Be full of faith and love. Look forward to that hope of salvation, that hope of deliverance from the wrath that is to come. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. You'll immediately recognize that's the place where Paul's telling Timothy that there's going to come a day that people will not listen to sound doctrine. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Last night we read down through verse 4. And they will turn their ears away from the truth, from the Torah, and be turned aside to fables. But verse 5 says, Be you watchful in all things, enduring afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. That word, be watchful, that's the same word as sober. So sober is being your right mind and watching. Be discerning. Be careful. Be able to, to tell the difference between darkness and light. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. Verse 13. Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, which makes no sense whatsoever. Right? Which means it's allegorical. And what does it mean? It means be sober-minded, be right-minded, be watchful, be ready to pursue that which is good. 
Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, be right-minded, and, re and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. When is the grace to be brought to us? At the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. As obedient children. If you're not an obedient child, you are not sober-minded. Could you also say keep your mind alert? Yes, keep your mind alert. Which reminds me of the old saying, be alert, the Air Force needs more alerts. Never made any sense, but it was funny. Has anyone in here other than myself ever noticed if you're just driving, you know, and your mind can go to 1,500 different spaces in less than a mile? Yep. And I find myself at times doing that, and I have to say, okay, bring my mind back into subjection to the spirit, yep. not just popping out. I mean, we can go from here to the space in our mind yep. and not even be focused on what's going on. Yep. So verse 14, as obedient children, this is helping to define what sober is, what right-minded is. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Where is it written, be holy, for I am holy? That's in Leviticus 11, verses 44 to 45, which is the chapter about don't eat piggies, shrimps, and lobsters, etc. So if you are sober-minded, right-minded, and watchful, you're watching your own conduct as well to make sure that you're being obedient to the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God, making your life holy, and what do we know about holy in Revelation 14, 12? The word saints is the same word as holy ones. Those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Go to 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. That word watchful is the same word which is sober. Like I said, sober includes watching, being careful, being discerning. First Peter what, sir? First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Sorry, I got ahead, huh? First Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. What's he mean the end of all things is at hand? That means the day of the Lord's coming. We don't know exactly when, but we know judgment day is coming. What's going to be judged? All of our works, whether good or evil. So if all our works are going to be judged, we should be right-minded. Yes, ma'am? I think it's pretty interesting that... Um most of these, almost all of these scriptures that we're going through on sober has a military context to it also. And he is coming back as a conquering king. Yep. And, and, and he tells us what the weapons of our warfare should be. Yep. And what happens to a century during warfare who falls asleep on a job? The execution. Execution. And the Lord, taught, I mean, the scriptures 
teach a lot about being a watchman on the wall, which yep. is what we're supposed to be. And I've heard you say that term several times now. And what if a watchman doesn't call out a warning when he sees the enemy approaching? Blood's on his hands. Blood's on his hands. Yep. Alrighty, the next place is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. And then we'll go on to verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. It tells us why we need to be so sober and vigilant. Be sober, be vigilant, which literally means be awake and watch, is what that Greek word means. Because, here's why. Your adversary, in Hebrew, the adversary is hasatan. The devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So if you are not being vigilant, if you're not watching your life and how you live, and the devil leads you astray, what's the end result? Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Which says, therefore, beloved. The therefore is because judgment day is coming. Beloved means he's talking to believers. You're not there yet. 2 Peter 3, 14. 2 Peter 3, 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. How can we look forward to Judgment Day? If our actions are righteous, we look forward to Judgment Day. If we're living in darkness, we ought not. It says, be diligent, be careful to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Tamim, you know what that means, Tamim? That's the standard for the lamb that's going to be sacrificed without spot or blemish. Be innocent. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation is also our beloved brother Paul. According to the wisdom given to him has written to you. As also in all his epistles speaking in them of these things. Paul always talks about the end times. He always talks about the goal. In which are some things hard to understand which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they also do the rest of the scriptures. When you see the phrase twist to their own destruction, you think that means it's a stairway to heaven or the highway to hell. Is it Led Zeppelin or ACDC? I ain't right, I know. Okay. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5, verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night, meaning in the darkness. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. They're things that lead you out of the light toward the darkness. Don't follow them. But... Let us who are of the day, that's the us, that's the you, that's the we in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let us who are of the day, those who are of the day walk in what? They walk in the light. 
Be sober, be right-minded, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. It is a helmet, the hope of salvation. The key thing in this verse to me is notice faith and love are one garment, not two garments. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot believe in God and not love God with all that he's done for us. You cannot love God without faith in God. So there are two sides of one coin. Let's start with Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29. I don't think that's 29. I think that's 59. We'll find out in a minute. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking to see if it's 29 or 59. I'm now thinking it's 59. Yeah. Verse 17. Find out in a minute. And it is Isaiah 59, verse 17. For he, that is Messiah Yeshua, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head and on the garments of and he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Now, don't turn away. But again, in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says the breastplate is faith and love. And what is the breastplate in verse 17 here? Righteousness. Righteousness. What do faith and love lead you to? Righteousness. Righteousness is the outcome, the byproduct, that which flows naturally from the faith and the love. You will not walk in righteousness without faith and love for God. Psalm 31. Psalm 31. Verse 23. Psalm 31, verse 23. Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints. Saints, Revelation 14, 12. They keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. That grows out of the love of the Lord. Love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful. And fully repays the proud person. Uh-oh. Do you want to be the faithful or the proud? Faithful. Yeah, faithful. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to look at two different verses in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. 
verse 2. You have to understand 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, in light of John 14, 15, which says, If you love me, come on, keep my commandments. Verse 2 says, And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could not remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Can you have faith without love? No. They go hand in hand. Same chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. If faith in God does not cause you to love God, do you really have faith? Is it real? Up. Wayne, what has God ever done for me? Every breath. Every breath. Created the heavens and the earth, all that is in it. All the air, all the food, all the fresh drink. It's all from God. Every heartbeat. Every heartbeat. He brought us into this world. He heals us when we're sick. He comforts us when we're hurting. He sent his only begotten son that we may have eternal life. Amen. That's all. Okay, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 6 and 7 and see whether they're disjointed topics or whether they really flow one from another. That's right. Galatians 5 verse 6 says, For in Messiah Yeshua neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So is he telling them that their faith is not true? It's in vain. If they're trying to earn salvation by works. It's exactly what he's saying. When he says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? The truth is Torah. Does the Torah teach salvation by faith or salvation by works? It teaches salvation by faith. It goes all the way back to Genesis 15, right? And Abraham believed God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. The works of the law were never to earn salvation. They were to show a child of God how to live a life that's pleasing unto God. How many of you had parents? Most of you, right? Okay. When you were obedient to your parents... Did that please them or displease them? It pleased them, didn't it? If you're obedient to our Heavenly Father, does that please Him or displease It pleases Him. How does a loving child respond to a loving father? With obedience out of love. 
A servant, a slave, may obey the master out of fear of punishment, but a child obeys out of love. The slave is the picture of those in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, where the law was external to them. In the New Covenant, the law is written upon our hearts and minds. It's not external, it's internal. It's not that we have to be forced to, it's that we get to. We want to. That's exactly right. So when people come up to me and say, you have to do this, I say, it's not a matter of have to. I want to. What has God done for me? Everything. What does he ask of me? Very little. And his commandments are not burdensome. 1 John chapter 5. A good verse in the Psalms which confused me for a long time. I think it's David says, What shall I give unto the Lord? I know. I'll take the cup of salvation and call on him. And call on him. That's what you give for the Lord. Exactly. Take the cup of salvation. Which is Yeshua. Yeah. And you call on the name of the Lord, which means salvation. you're obedient to him. How many people are walking in this world saying the Lord is my God, but no, I'm not going to keep his commandments. Do they understand what the word Lord means or what the word God means? Got to wonder. Go to Ephesians chapter 6, which is the next book to the right. Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 14. In 1 Thessalonians, again, the breastplate was what? Faith and love. In Isaiah, it was righteousness. Here in Ephesians chapter 6, by the same person who wrote 1 Thessalonians, in verse 14, says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. What's truth? There's the Torah, the commandments of God. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. People say, oh, Paul's being inconsistent. Is it faith and love or is it righteousness? Those are not inconsistent. Faith and love leads to, causes, brings us to righteousness. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Many places in the New Testament is called the gospel of the kingdom. Why is it called here the gospel of peace? Because it's what brings peace between the Jew and Gentile, one in Messiah. And above all, taking the shield of faith with which they would be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The helmet of salvation, which is the most, oh, sensitive part of the body in warfare to protect. The head. The head. You can take a shot in the chest and survive. You take one in the head. Yeah, not much hope there. So that's why the salvation is the helmet. The battlefield when we're fighting Satan is in the mind. It sure is. First Timothy chapter 1.
one of the most effective tools that Satan has is your sins of the past to make you dwell on your sins. And my advice to you is whenever Satan reminds me of your past, remind him of his future. Ah, no, because I was doing that when, I did, when this happened. <laughs> I, you know, even, even, even Michael didn't go railing against him. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Now the purpose, wait a minute, that's the Greek word telos, the same as in Romans 10.4. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Notice how the love and the faith just are inseparable. Now put in the word and like they did in Romans 10.4. Now the end of the commandment is love from a pure heart. And everybody goes, well, we know that's not right. But this just reinforces the fact that telos means the goal or purpose, not the termination. If anybody thinks love has ended, well, come see me after service. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're up to verse 9. And this is one of the most important verses in 1 Timothy. Waiting for somebody to go, we're in 1 Thessalonians. Yes, it was a test. Okay. You thought it was one of those, okay. 4. What does 4 mean? Because God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. How many of you have heard people say, oh, there is no pre-trib rapture. The children of God have to go through the tribulation because we're so sinful and nasty. This says, for God did not appoint us to wrath. What wrath are we talking about? Let's go back to, first of all, Isaiah chapter 26. Which is the chapter in Isaiah about the rapture and the resurrection. In verse 20, Isaiah 26, 20. Come, my people, enter your chambers. Those are the marriage chambers. And shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. What is that word indignation? You know. Za'am. It is the wrath of God being poured out on the world in the tribulation period. So are God's people going through this za'am, this indignation, this wrath being poured out? No. They're in the bridal chambers in heaven. The place that Messiah prepared for us in John 14, 2. In my Father's house are many mansions, it says. With a little asterisk, it says, well, not really mansions, but it's the bridal chambers. So we will not be here on this world when God's wrath is poured out upon it. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 66. Where we also see that word za'am, Z-A apostrophe A-M. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 14. Yep, 
When you see this, that is the Lord comforting Jerusalem. Your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. That's God's protection and benefit. And his indignation, that's the za'am, that is the wrath being poured out to his enemies. Does God pour out his wrath on his servants or his enemies? His enemies, not to his servants. Let's go up to the book of Matthew, chapter 3. And see verses that use the same word that is translated wrath there in 1 Thessalonians. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. John the Baptist is baptizing. It is the time of Teshuvah, the time of repentance, the time that starts in just a couple weeks now, right? And here comes all of Judea down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, including here come the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 7 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Why does John associate the baptism and the wrath to come. The purpose of the baptism. Yes, ma'am? In verse 8. If we bear fruits worthy of repentance. Yep, yeah, we, we will get there. We are getting there. Let's see. I have to. Um, yeah, all those are true. So, still in verse 7. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The baptism is not what causes them to flee the wrath to come. It's the repentance that goes with the baptism. It's supposed to yeah, so the Pharisees and Sadducees have come without repentance, thinking that the baptism is going to cause them to avoid the wrath that is to come. And John said, no, 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 no. If you think back to the Old Testament, to the sacrifices in the temple, what was to precede bringing the sacrifice? The repentance. But here the scribes and Pharisees think repentance is not necessary. I will just come do the baptism and then I'm good. And what's the point? Verse 8. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, meaning if I am judging you wrong, Melanie, if you really are here to repent, then your life will show it. Demonstrate your repentance in your walk that your life has changed. He's saying to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you have no intention of repenting. Why? Because they didn't think they needed to. Why? Because they think they're holy, righteous, and perfect. Does God think they're holy, righteous, and perfect? No. But if you are to go up to the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees and say, are you on the path to heaven? They would have said yes. So why don't you come join us? Did Messiah say they're on the path to heaven? Or did he say, you're hypocrites? He said, you're hypocrites. So who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's the repentance that brings forgiveness. Does God pour his wrath on the repentant? 
or the unrepentant? The unrepentant. That's important. Go to Luke 21. Luke 21 is about the second coming of the Lord. We all know that. Luke 21. At least if you didn't, she'll pretend now you did, right? Luke 21. You knew that. I know. Verse 23. Luke chapter 21, verse 23. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. Which days? The days of the tribulation period, right? The day of the Lord. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. So what wrath are we talking about? The wrath of the tribulation. God pouring out his indignation, his wrath, his anger. Upon who? His servants or the wicked? I forget. The wicked. Yeah, I didn't really forget. I'm just pretending. John. Perhaps chapter 3. Verse 36. Ah, yes. It tells us in the New Testament, upon whom does the wrath fall? He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So is the wrath of God for the believer or the unbeliever? The unbeliever. Are you beginning to see a pattern, a theme? How many of you would like to experience the wrath of God because you think it would be a cool thing? If so, see me after service. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God, here we go is revealed from heaven against whom? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Another way to put that is those who walk in lawlessness. Those who walk in darkness. That's who the wrath of God is for. Not for his children. What verse? Romans chapter 1 verse 18. Yep. Sorry, I don't mean to get ahead. I get excited. <laughs> For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what should we be repenting of? All ungodliness and unrighteousness, right? Yeah. All of it. Can't we keep just a little sin? Just as a reminder of the old life. The answer is no. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Notice the word suppress isn't an accident. It's a choice. It's a decision. I will walk in sin and God will just have to take me as I am. Oh, he will, right to hell. Yeah, right down to the lake of fire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Romans chapter 2. Verses 5 to 9.
Romans chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart. What's an impenitent heart? One that will not repent. You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. What's another term for unrighteousness? Lawlessness. Indignation and wrath. Notice Paul puts indignation and wrath together to make sure we understand that that word in Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 66 is talking about the same thing. Verse 10, but glory... Wait a minute, verse 9. Tribulation and anguish in every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Mm-mm-mm-mm. That word tribulation is the word wrath. They tend to use different Greek words and translate them into the word tribulation. To make us doubt the existence of a tribulation period. And to make us think that the church goes through the wrath of God. Explain Jew first and then the Gentile. He means that we should first concentrate on salvation to the Jews and then take it out to the world. If we go back to Acts chapter 1. Verse 8. It says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You see how it starts in Jerusalem with the Jews and then goes outward. That's what he means. Ephesians 5, verse 6. Ephesians 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. What are empty words? Words of no value. For because of these things, because of the sins of the world, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Not upon the sons of light, not upon the sons of God, but upon the sons of disobedience who are the sons of darkness. So, if you don't want the wrath of God to fall upon you, do you want to be a son of light or a son of darkness? Of light. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 Hey, wait a minute. That's the book we're studying. Yeah, but chapter 1 was so long ago we forgot. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead even Yeshua who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's the word ek. It doesn't mean through. It means out of. 
We won't go through the wrath that is to come. That's the same word used in Revelation 3.10. Let's go to Revelation 3.10. Same word, ek. Not eek, that means you saw a rat. But ek means out of. Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I will keep you ek, out of. They say here from, but it means out of. Not through. God is very consistent. While we're in Revelation, which I wish I'd stayed, go to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. How do you realize that in Revelation chapter 6, they're in the tribulation period? Yeah. Let's start in verse 15 for context. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. When's the wrath falling? It's in the tribulation period. Verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The day of the Lord begins with the tribulation period, so one of the terms for this period is the great day of his wrath. Revelation 14.10, ooh, this is a bad chapter, ooh, ooh, ooh. Judgment, wrath being poured out. We'll start in verse 9 so we know who they're talking about. Then a third angel. Slow down a little bit. Okay, I'll take a drink of my dirty water here. Chapter 14, 10, but we're going to start in 9 so we don't start in the middle of a sentence. 14.9 says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Again, putting the wrath and indignation together. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Then is an odd the next verse says, Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Meaning, here's the two choices. Will you take the mark of the beast and worship the beast in his image? Or will you keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua? It's one or the other. When you take the mark of the beast, you've rejected God. Mm -mm -mm. Is it possible that a person in that time frame 
could actually go along because of fear and whatever and worship, but then say, no, I, I, I don't like this, I, I'm going to take the mark. The answer is no. You take the mark when you worship the beast, and at that point, it's sealed, it's over. So, leave a little note on your dining room table when you go in the rapture that says, don't take the mark. That's funny when I tell my children, my grandchildren that too. I said, when I'm gone, <clears throat> remember I've taught you, don't take, don't take the mark. Yep, don't take the mark. Ready to go with me, but, you know. Yeah. But you know, children are almost like people. Almost. <laughs> they get to make their own decisions. Back to First Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5. That was verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, who died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. What does he mean, wake or sleep? That means rapture or resurrection. If we're still alive when the Lord blows that trumpet, that's the rapture. If we have died as believers, that's the resurrection. Notice it says we should live together with him. Keep that phrase in mind. When we come to 2 Thessalonians and talk about our gathering together to him, as Paul says, I wrote to you and I talked to you beforehand. So the gathering together to him is the rapture and resurrection. That was 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 10. Yep. Verse 11. Therefore. Oh, if he says therefore, we've got to ask, what's it there for? Because of what? If he died for us. Whether we wake or sleep, either way. He did not appoint us to wrath, but to live together with him. That's the blessed hope. Therefore, verse 11, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. The word comfort doesn't mean comfort. It means to encourage, to build each other up. Don't let your faith wane. Don't be moved. You must abide in Messiah. Keep your faith strong. Why would he have to encourage them to stay strong? Aren't there families and friends back in Thessaloniki saying, oh, it's so great you're a believer now? No. What are they saying? You've joined a cult. You've lost your mind. So encourage each other to stand strong. Because we will either suffer the wrath of God or we will be gathered together to Messiah to be with him forever. It's one or the other. It's interesting that, that actually cults do encourage one another more than, more than most believers are willing to. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if I'd use the word encourage one another or threaten one another when you're talking about a cult. But I know what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. So what was the last verse of chapter 4? 
Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Verse 11, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. What does it mean to edify? To build up. To To teach. To encourage growth in faith and knowledge of the Lord. Verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So while the families are trying to tear them away, he says, I encourage you to recognize, to listen to those teachers that have been put over you. That's Timothy and Silas that are teaching while Paul is absent. Listen to them. Learn from them. They labor among you to bring people to the Lord. And what's it mean to admonish you? To rebuke, set it straight. When you start to veer off the path, put you back on the path. Does anybody like being told, you know, you're not doing this quite right? Don't people just love to hear that? No, they don't. But Paul says, you've got to be careful. He only had three weeks with them. He taught them and exhorted them best he could. But what happens when his influence goes? And the people are left to try and sort out the scriptures for themselves. How many of you, after three weeks as a believer, knew all the scripture, just back and forth? No, I didn't think so, me either. So verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And be at peace among yourselves. I mean, don't fight. Study the scriptures. Learn from the scriptures. What does the Bible say? Don't fight over how you think, think things ought to be done. Look at the scriptures. They will tell you. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. What's it mean, warn those who are unruly? Warn them of what? Of the wrath to come. Yep. Comfort the faint-hearted, those that are afraid, those that are questioning their faith. Comfort them, build them up, establish them, encourage them. Uphold the weak. Does everybody's faith begin strong? Or does sometimes people start to question, Do I, did this really happen? And be patient with all. Oh, again, he says, put down the two befores. It just doesn't work. Verse 15, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. What did Messiah say about cheeks? Turn the other cheek. So don't render evil for evil. If somebody outside is persecuting you, does that mean you should persecute them back? No. But always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Is there anything wrong with being selfish and self-centered? Yes. Yes, so consider yourself, yes, but also consider the rest. Consider everybody's needs, not just your own. I love verse 16. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. Whatever the circumstances, 
What does 2 Corinthians 6.10 say? 2 Corinthians 6.10. Talking about themselves, Paul says, But in all things we commend ourselves, verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. If life is hard, what do we rejoice in? The salvation, the life to come. As poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. What's important? The riches we have in this world or in the world to come? In the world to come. If your riches are in this world, where's your heart? Going to be in this world. Back to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. Pray without ceasing. You know, people misunderstood that when Paul wrote this. And there are people who quit their jobs, sold all their possessions, and sat on a mountaintop praying 24 hours a day. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says you misunderstood. Get back to work. But it means don't stop Praying to God. What does Revelation describe your prayers as? Incense before the throne of God. God loves your prayers. Ties back to Deuteronomy 6 where he says. Think about the commandments when you get up and you go down. Teach them to your children. Yeah. All those different things. So it, like if, you're, if you're pondering the commandments, then you always have something to pray about. Yeah. In other words, keep God in the forefront of your mind at all times. Don't be like my friend in law school who was a, a Jewish lady approaching 50, so she was kind of like the mom to all of us. And I said to her one day, because honestly didn't know. I said, what's the difference between Christianity and Judaism? And she said, I'll tell you the truth, Wayne. If I knew, I'd tell you. But she said, my husband and I go to shul once a year on Yom Kippur, don't understand anything they're saying, and then we go home. And we go back next year on Yom Kippur. She said, that's all I know. So one day a year, God was on the mind. The rest of the year, ah, it's... What can we have in this life? Is that what God wants? No, he wants you to keep him in mind. What's Ephesians 6.18 say? Ephesians 6.18 Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So when you pray, do you pray just about yourself? Or do you pray for the needs of others? We pray for the needs of others. Back to 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Yes, sir. Psalm 119, 
Psalm 119, 11. Turn there. Go ahead, Daniel. Psalm 119.11 goes right along with pray without ceasing. It says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So if you keep his word at the forefront, you will not sin against God. Why did God tell us to put the zeet seed on the corners of our garments? In case you decide to sin, you've got a reminder right here. Why in Acts chapter 10 did God let down the animals on his talit? So that as Peter looks up at those unclean animals, he sees the reminder of God's commandments where God said, don't do it. And when the voice from heaven says, rise, Peter, kill and eat, Peter says, okay, Lord, I'll have a ham sandwich, right? Nope. No. He says, not so, Lord, I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Does it hurt to have a reminder of God's commandments with us? It does not. When Satan tempted Messiah, how did Messiah always answer? He quoted scripture, it is written. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In everything give thanks. It doesn't say for everything give thanks. It means in everything give thanks. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 18. The next verse. Kind of reminds me of a sign in a little diner in LJ. It says everyone who enters this place makes me happy. Some when they enter, some when they leave. <laughs> but in all things... Give thanks. Even if we don't have everything we want at the moment, we can still give God thanks for everything we have. And if you were a child of God, the scripture says you're joint heirs with Messiah, meaning you will inherit everything. In the new Jerusalem, what are the streets paved with? Gold. Can you imagine the wealth and the beauty in that city? And it's all going to be yours if you're a child of God. So if you don't have a Mercedes Benz in this world or a Jaguar or something. I won't need it when I get there. Yeah, can't take it with you anyway. <laughs> Verse 18, and everything give thanks for this is the will of God and Messiah Yeshua for you. Be in thankfulness to God for all that he's done. Did he have to send his only begotten son to die for you? No, he did that because he loves you. Verse 19, do not quench the spirit. The Holy Spirit of God moves. And let the Holy Spirit of God do his job and his mission. One of which is to walk. To write the Torah upon your heart. Let him do it. Let him open it up to you. Let him lead you to Messiah through it. Verse 20. 
Verse 20, do not despise prophecies. There were a lot of churches where I grew up that forbid people from studying prophecy. It wasn't just a yacht not do it, it's forbidden. Scripture says, do not despise prophecies. Every word that God said will come to pass. Every word. Why do some churches say it's absolutely forbidden to study prophecy? You'll learn the truth. Because you'll learn the truth. Revelation 17 talks about mystery Babylon. There are a lot of denominations that don't want you to know what that means. Verse 21 says, test all things. Hold fast what is good. What do you do with what's evil? Trash it, abstain from it, but test all things. Is it good or is it wrong? Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it light? Is it darkness? Let's go to 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. First John chapter 4, verse 1. How many people say, I don't need to read the Bible. My pastor tells me everything I need to know. Yeah, I've heard it. Verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Again, that goes right back to them wanting to know this, wanting to know the one they say they are following. Yeah. And they don't take the time to spend any time with him. To me, the Bible is a love letter uh -huh. that my God wrote to me. And I go searching for treasures yeah. all the time. Mm -hmm. But the people who say, for instance, uh, I don't need to know that. I was, I was uh, approached the other day about, well, I bet y'all people at your church don't eat you know, what you do. I said, it doesn't matter what they eat. To me, I am required to do what I know. Unto him, it is a sin. Yep. And people don't want to know what's in here. Even right, the because people. then they might have to do it. Oh, they'd have to repent. Yeah, I agree. So what does verse 1 mean? There are many pastors, many preachers, many prophets out there prophesying and preaching things that don't agree with the scripture. So how do we test it? What did the Bereans do? They took what they were taught and they went to the scripture to see if it was so. And what if it wasn't? Then you flush it. Deuteronomy 18 says if they're a true prophet of God, what percentage comes to pass? 100% every word. As a believer, at least I've had to do this in my own life, if I'm not hearing the truth, I also have a responsibility to, to I, um, I don't know what word I'm looking for. It's not to have an argument with that person. or even But to point out the error? Yes, yes. And then if they won't hear, I mean, 
I literally walked away from the pastor. I've been under you know him for many, many years because of what I knew had happened with uh, my own sons. And when he and his, I call them cohorts now, and they gathered around, and for 20 minutes I was appealing to him, the pastor, and his wife, and I could just see the separation that was happening. Yeah, unfortunately. So I left that fellowship. Oh. Sorry. Matthew 7. I think you did the right thing, though. Matthew 7. Matthew 7 is about how do you know the true teacher from the false teacher? Verse 16. You'll know them by their fruits, by their actions. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. If the preacher, pastor, rabbi, prophet, whatever term, is not following God's commandments, is that a person to follow? If they're walking in darkness, can they show you the light? doesn't work that way. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. Verse 22. 1 Thessalonians 5. Back where we were. Okay. Yep. Our starting point. But you're right, I should say that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22. It's a very short sentence. Abstain from what? Every form of evil. The word evil and the word bad is the same Hebrew word. So in the Garden of Eden, there's the tree of good and evil. You could have said good and bad is the same word. So what bad things does Paul say go ahead and do? None. Abstain from every evil. And that, let's just add to that 1 John 3, 4, because it's pretty, pretty obvious what it means to abstain from every form of evil. 1 John 3, 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness in the Greek is anomia, and it means that which is contrary to God's law. So if you're breaking a commandment of God, that is sin, that is lawlessness. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Lest I get preachy. Is there anybody who doesn't know what it means to abstain from? Means what? Don't do it. From every form of evil. Verse 23. Now may the God of peace. The God of peace. What's Messiah called in Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7? Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. But the word prince there doesn't mean the son of a king. It means one who is in charge of. He is the God of peace. So this is referring to Messiah. 
And may the God of peace himself sanctify you, does it say in part? Somewhat. It says completely. To sanctify you completely is to abstain from every form of evil. It's just two sides of the same coin. To sanctify is to set apart, to make holy, to make different from the world, to remove from sins and move them into righteousness. Yes, sir? There is no way that God can sanctify you unless you repent. There is that false doctrine, isn't there? That you don't need to repent. God takes care of all that. So God looks down and sees the righteousness of Messiah when he sees you out there walking through the whorehouses and drug dens of the world. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. Yeah, that's exactly, Daniel's right. You can, you can sum up verse 22 in one word, and that is repent. That's what repentance means, is abstain from every evil. And may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Two points I want to make here. This is called the human triunity. Of course, that's my term for it. Are you spirit, are you soul, or are you body? You're all three. But are there three of you? No, they're just three different aspects of each person. So your whole spirit, soul, and body means absolutely everything you are, all that you think, all that you desire, all that you will, be preserved blameless. There's that word that the Hebrew would be tamim. The same one we saw over in 2 Peter. Let's go to 2 Peter and look at it again. 2 Peter. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. So it's talking about come judgment day. Let the Lord look at you and see you as without spot and blameless. Now back to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Means when you stand in judgment before God one day, may he see you without spot or blemish. For that to happen, that means that you have repented. And the sin has been washed away. Verse 24 says, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Why would Paul need prayer? He's constantly being what? Beaten, shipwrecked, bit by serpents, etc. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. In other words, in all churches everywhere. It's not just for the church at Thessaloniki. By the way, I learned this week that Thessaloniki is named after the sister of Alexander the Great. Didn't you always want to know that? I don't know. So verse 28, the grace of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah be with you. Amen. 
Having finished the, ver- the chapter, we say, Chazak, Chazak, Venish, Chazak. Be strong, be strong, and may you be strengthened. For how are we strengthened as believers? By studying the word of God. Next week, Lord willing, we will pick up a 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1.